I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to Doomsday Watch. We hope you're finding these war bulletins valuable. A quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding app Patreon from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Today, we're joined by Jack Watling. Jack has positioned himself as probably the preeminent expert on Ukraine's war here in the UK, and he's just back from Ukraine, so he can give us some up-to-date feedback. And this week, we're bringing you a double header. First, I discuss with Jack the situation on the ground in the war, and then later in the week, we're going to talk about the regional, international and strategic factors, including the ongoing issue of how we supply weapons to the Ukrainians. So stay tuned. Jack, welcome. Thank you for having me. So Jack, as I mentioned, you've, you've just travelled there. Um, before we go any further, I'd love to hear sort of what your impressions were. I know it's by no means your first visit to Ukraine. How did it feel and how did it compare with some of your earlier visits? Somewhat disjointed. Uh, so on the one hand, you have the shops opening, people going about their lives, trying to return to the cities in many cases, particularly in Kiev. Traffic jams are a feature of life once again. And yet, at the same time, there is an air raid siren every day. Sometimes that means a missile is en route to the city that you're in. Sometimes it means it's going somewhere else. But there is this continual uh, fear. And at the same time, the number of people who are walking wounded, uh, clearly recovering from battlefield injuries, is very evident in the street. Yeah. Testament to the fact that while the fighting might not be uh, encompassing all of Ukraine's border at the moment. The threat is there and the intensity in, of the fighting in the Donbass is very, very high. And so kind of war is all around you and yet there is a a strange return to normality in much of everyday life. Yeah. And I guess obviously in Kyiv in particular, uh, that must be the case. But uh, as you mentioned, the Donbass there, uh, that's where the war has really been raging for the past few weeks. The situation in the Donbass is, is very difficult for the Ukrainians. Uh, so when I was there, the battle for Sivridonetsk was really at its height. And uh, in fact, while I was in the country, the Ukrainians decided to withdraw because they were in a position where their infantry were trying to hold on to a town or city which had been systematically destroyed by artillery. There's very little cover left. And the roads leading into the city were also under Russian fire, which meant that the Ukrainians couldn't bring their own artillery up. And so they didn't really have very much of a response. And that was because the, the Russians had wrapped their way around the city in previous attacks. And so they've now withdrawn to a more defensive position. And we're seeing the Russians reset their troops, uh, reposition their guns to try and bring about the same situation, potentially in, in a, no a number of other towns. Um, where they will basically try and punch round the flanks of the defensive line to push the Ukrainian artillery back and then set up that uh, very, very vicious artillery fire on the defensive positions. And what we're seeing on the Ukrainian side is an attempt to disrupt that uh, process by targeting and destroying the logistics for the Russian artillery. Yeah. So 
Is it now the case that the Russians control the Donbass or are there, is there still more territory to go? There is still more territory to go. Uh, there, are, there are a small number of towns in, in a pocket left and they are pretty major towns, uh, Kremitorsk being the, the largest probably. Um, those are going to be massive hurdles for the Russian forces and each one is going to require this approach where they isolate it first with artillery and then start uh, piling on the pressure. Um, the challenge for the Ukrainians is whether they can prevent that dynamic from being set up, because otherwise, while it takes time, the result is that the Ukrainians are steadily forced back. And I suppose just taking a couple of steps back here, uh, when the Russians first switched their kind of focus to the Donbass, clearly the, the opening part of the war, there was a focus on taking the whole country and particularly Kiev, and then that failed. And I think there was a certain amount of triumphalism in, in the West around the thought that the Russians had clearly failed in their primary objective, but, but perhaps people going a bit far in uh, assuming that the Russians were completely incapable of achieving any military objectives. Whereas in the Donbass, they've shown that they can uh, with much more focused uh, resources uh, and the same sort of tactics of, of complete disregard for civilian casualties so is it now to be expected that they will continue to achieve those advances? If things are left as they are, then yes, the Russian military can grind its way forward. Um, however, we've already seen the impact of long-range rocket artillery in destroying the ammunition dumps. That essentially suppresses the Russian guns. It doesn't destroy the guns and it doesn't prevent the Russians from moving more ammunition forward if the rocket systems uh, lift. But so long as that capability is there and the Ukrainians can find those targets, then it prevents the Russians from having that advantage on the ground. In addition to that, the Ukrainians are preparing for counterattacks. And so they are hoping to be able to essentially spread the Russian efforts over more of the front. It's about 2,400 kilometers of front. It's a very large area. Yeah. And in doing that, they can then disperse Russia's resources um, and we're also, the critical question is, now that the Ukrainians are suppressing the buildup of artillery ammunition, what are they going to do with the opportunity that that creates? Yeah. Because they could use that time to really start picking apart a lot of the, the Russian command and control and artillery systems. But that's dependent upon ammunition, and they don't have very much of it. I want to come back to the, uh, the ammunition and supplies in general. But just while we're still talking about the sort of current state of the fight, uh, the other city that seems worth talking about is Kherson, which is further south and further west. Uh, and that's currently held by the Russians. Is that right? That's correct. It was seized very early in the invasion with a fairly limited resistance, partly because the Ukrainians had had to prioritize where they gave their weaponry. Yeah. And the troops that were in there uh, didn't have very much anti-tank weaponry or other systems, very little artillery as well. And so that was lost in the early phase. The Russian plan was to punch on from there, seize Mokolaev and then Odessa, and permanently sever Ukraine's access to the Black Sea. Yeah. But they were blunted in their attempt to first uh, directly attack and then encircle Mokolaev. And since then, the Ukrainians have been conducting small-scale but persistent counterattacks to force the Russians back into Kherson. Uh, there's been persistent rumours and suggestions that that will be a 
priority axis for a Ukrainian counterattack to divert Russian resources from the Donbass. Um, but we'll see. Right. So that was kind of my next question. Is oh, it, But it sounds as though what you're saying is that the, uh, the Ukrainians are not yet at the stage where they're ready to launch a counterattack to retake that, which I think, if I'm not mistaken, would be the, the biggest sort of counterattack by the Ukrainians since the start of this war. The Ukrainians obviously conducted the uh, pursuit of the Russians as they withdrew from Kiev and inflicted pretty heavy casualties in the process. They then conducted a very costly counterattack from Kharkiv. Um, and I think the important thing about that attack from Kharkiv is that they were they needed to use some of their best units to conduct it. Yeah. Because offensive operations requires much more skill than defensive operations. And they lost a lot of people. Uh, and the conclusion from that was counterattacks are costly and need to be properly set up. Yeah. Now, when it comes to a, a counterattack on Kherson, yes, it would be a major reversal uh, for the Russians and and a you know a very significant turning point for the Ukrainians, but for the Ukrainian military they have a limited number of personnel who are experienced infantiers and capable of the attack. They also have massively expanded their force, and they don't have very many brigade staffs, kind of middle level commanders, battalion and brigade staffs who know how to integrate machine gun snipers, mortars, armor, artillery into uh, the same battle space. So yeah. often what we see is the Ukrainians fighting their artillery systems, fighting their infantry systems, a kind of com company group, and doing innovative things at a small scale, and that is clawing background. But if they want to conduct a major attack, then they need to make sure that they've got enough people who are trained and prepared and have a clear plan down at the tactical level. If they don't do that, then there is a risk that they'll take very heavy casualties. And so I think the, the main challenge at this point is ensuring that it's not done prematurely. That, to some extent, uh, feels like a, a snapshot of where the conflict lies sort of at the national level. Now, there are some other things that are going on which which are very intriguing and interesting one of them is as you've already mentioned these hits on russian ammunition dumps and then further than that and further behind russian lines you're seeing intriguing situations you know major munitions factories or other strategic locations going up in flames other slightly inexplicable incidents and there's been a little bit of reporting about Ukrainian uh, special operations, the so-called SSO force, I think it's called. Um, is, there, is there much you know about that that you could share with us in terms of what's happening in that space? So there are a few different things there. The first is the striking of ammunition dumps. To be honest, when you look at the volumes of ammunition that we're talking about, it's pretty difficult to hide. Yeah. And uh, given that the Russians don't use containerization or palletization for their logistics, it's, you know, blokes lifting wooden boxes off trucks. Right. It takes quite a long time to build up the volume of shells. You're talking 20,000 shells a day. And so these are things that you can see from space using commercial satellites. Right. You don't need high end military systems to find them. Um, then you need to plan getting your HIMARS in place to to actually strike those targets. 
And the um, HIMARS, these are the, the medium-range targeted rockets that have been supplied by those of us that are sort of NATO fairly, countries. Fairly long-range, to be yeah. honest. But yeah, 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 exactly. Multiple launch rocket systems, yeah, that fire very precise uh, rockets. Um, so the Ukrainians have had a lot of success in, in causing those to detonate. Um, however, it's worth noting that there is a limited stockpile of uh, GMLRS, so the, the munition uh, for HIMARS uh, in Western stockpiles, and they mm. take quite a long time to make. They're precision munitions. They're very expensive. So it's not something that can be carried out indefinitely. Um, it can be carried out for quite a while, but it's not indefinite. And that's comes back to that point about what do you do with the time that it buys you. The second type of strike is targeting command and control infrastructure. Um, and there are a number of ways in which that's being done, but electronic warfare being one of them, watching for signatures. And it's worth noting that you know the, the Ukrainian government has encouraged its citizens to report on the location of Russian forces and units. Mm. And um, because their territory was overrun, they obviously have a lot of civilians behind the lines. And they have a lot of information about what's going on. Yeah. And so uh, putting all those things together, they have been able to conduct quite a few strikes on command posts. And the interesting thing about that is that whereas destroying ammunition suppresses the guns because there's plenty of more ammunition to come, killing the command post staff uh, has a much more permanent effect because there aren't a an infinite supply of trained staff officers or um, officers who have an understanding of the battle space management tools who can coordinate Russian fires. And so as those command posts are hit, what you see is a reduction in the efficiency of the Russian artillery and also the coordination of that artillery at a higher and higher or more concentrated echelon, um, which has a few effects. It means that the commander increasingly has a wider range of assets to, to throw against a problem. So we see more tactical ballistic missiles being used um, in a sort of battlefield role, but it also means that for a lot of the engagements, it's going to be less efficient. Right. Then you have your your other component, which is sabotage and special operations. Um, I won't be particularly specific about that, but uh, you know there has been a very dirty war between the Russian special services and their Ukrainian counterparts going on for eight years. They know each other very well and the ukrainians are actively trying to disrupt and slow down russian logistics and to put as much you know grit in the gears of the russian war machine as they can yeah which is a very traditional special forces role um and they have been building up the infrastructure to do that for quite a long time so um you know i think that the thing about those sorts of operations is that Cumulatively, it counts, and uh, it's certainly better done than not done. Mm. But it's very rarely decisive. It's not going to win you the war. What it might do is enable you to gain advantage in the areas where you slow down the supply of ammunition or slow down the supply of uh, replacement troops and vehicles, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it, it helps you gain breathing space to do something else that you need to do in order to win. Yes, exactly. And so it's it's about how do you how do you take advantage of the you know, multiple pinpricks that you're inflicting in that space to uh, achieve something with your conventional forces. Yeah. Well, since we've come on to that, um, you know, dirty war or, or the sort of the, the special operations conflict, it seems a relevant time to bring up the news, which actually I think was broke today, but there's been whisperings of it for the past week or so of um, 
effectively uh, accusations of infiltrators or, or, or treason inside the Ukrainian intelligence and, and special services. Now, to some extent, uh, given that these the Ukrainian services were born out of the Soviet uh, intelligence services, it wouldn't be a surprise if Russia continued to have tentacles that reached into there. But it's, it's quite interesting that uh, President Zelensky chose to fire both the chief prosecutor and the head of intelligence. What, what's your reading of that development? There, so, I mean, the Russian services have been targeting their Ukrainian counterparts for decades. Yeah. And they used to have exchange programs. You know, lots of the more senior Ukrainian intelligence officers used to be either Soviet officers or have been on exchange programs into yeah. the Russian services and vice versa. They've trained in Russian academies in many cases. And so there are people in that community, especially given that the Russian campaign is really driven by a number of people whose backgrounds are in the special services. Mm. Um, in some cases, there's a shared outlook. There's also on both sides, both the Russian and the Ukrainian side, uh, corruption, you know, as a, as a driver for people to behave in certain ways. Um, now, when the uh, FSB Fifth Service were doing a lot of the planning for the occupation administrations, they were counting on the support of uh, a significant number of people in the Ukrainian government, including in the SBU, the yeah. security service. And it's worth noting that the SBU is a number of things, right? It's it's both a police force and an investigative organization. So it, it targets organized crime. It does counterterrorism investigations. It's a bit like the FBI in many respects, but it also has a counterintelligence function. And so a lot of those local officials, when their regions were overrun, continued to do their jobs, but have done them on behalf of the Russians in the areas that have been occupied. So that's one thing. And it's worth noting that, that you know, there, was, there were stories very early on in the invasion that oh, the FSB wasted a lot of money because all of its assets disappeared. I think a lot of its assets went quiet and became patriotic, as it were, because it was dangerous to be anything else yeah. um, at the point where they realized that the, the invasion wasn't going as planned and, and what they were being asked to do was uh, unlikely to be successful. Um, but those individuals are still in place. And so there is significant penetration of the Ukrainian system. And it's always been a real challenge politically for the Ukrainians to balance the need to comb out these people and shut them down versus the impact of, you know, giving the sense that they are fractured and penetrated and there isn't the political unity that, that they need. And the sense that, you know, they are arresting people who, in many cases are prominent figures and uh, have a following. You know, that's a politically difficult thing to do if you're not justifying mm. and explaining why. But of course, if you're justifying and explaining why, you're then exposing the methods by which you identified what they were doing. Yeah. And I think in this case, uh, Zelensky has made the judgment that um, there was a, you know, a, a need for a change in leadership from somebody who was you know, a childhood friend of his and, you know, somebody who was personally loyal to him. Yeah to perhaps somebody who was a old counterintelligence professional who could really get on top of some of these challenges. You know, just to sort of go back to that point, because it feels an important one. Uh, Zelensky fired his childhood friend, who was also the head of his intel service, 
Is this because he suspects that that guy himself has been un, uh, has been sort of treasonous, or that there is a problem inside the service that he hasn't got a grip on? Um, I mean, my reading is that Zelensky has made a judgment that there needs to be a shift in leadership in the SBU to get after this problem, and the loyalty of that individual to the president personally is probably less relevant at this point. Right. Um, it's really worth noting, I think, that as this war protracts and there are legitimate political questions that can be raised about Zelensky's judgment at certain times, politics is going to return to Kiev, right, even if the war goes on. So, for example, if we get into the winter and people have returned to their homes and there's no heating and there's no services, they may be critical of the government as to why they're not being provided with those things. That is something that someone can stand up in Parliament and say uh, the government is failing to deliver on X which is fine, but it also gives a lot of angles through which those individuals in the Ukrainian system who want to fracture their political unity uh, can exploit that. And so the Russian services are definitely preparing to move back to that hybrid destabilization of the Ukrainian government, which I think explains the timing to a certain extent of why the Ukrainians feel they need to start getting on the front foot in terms of closing down those networks, but also highlighting to those individuals who are still in place that it might be unsafe to recon, you know, recommence those activities that they were engaged in prior to the invasion. Yeah. And I guess, you know, since we're talking about this question of infiltration, and as you've described and illustrated, the degree to which there is institutional, a deep institutional knowledge, uh, would it be fair to assume it, it goes in the other direction? And uh, therefore, uh, is it quite likely that the um, that that there are Ukrainians who have assets in the Russian services? I think that'd be a fair assumption. Yes. What, what's your take on sort of the degree to which that is driving uh, the Ukrainians' understanding, or are they more reliant on external support? You know, the US or whoever. In terms of their understanding of Russia at the tactical and operational level, I would say they have very good understanding themselves, yeah, probably much better than the West. Um, at the strategic level, I would say the West probably has um, a better grasp of the Russians um, and more capability in that space. Um, yeah. But that's about priorities rather than priorities of where they've invested their efforts. Um, you know, it's worth noting that for the Ukrainians, they've been fighting the Russians for eight years. They have observed how the Russians do their business uh, day by day, uh, and have countered lots of those operations. And so they understand the pattern of life, they know what they're looking for. And these are people that they, in some cases, have been, you know, having firefights with uh, for a long time. So they they have a very significant tactical familiarity with their adversary. Yeah. Now, all, all of that makes sense. But on the other hand, it seemed that in the run up to the Russian invasion, the Ukrainians were not aware in the way that some Western intelligence agencies were that the invasion was imminent. Yeah, so um, we get into a bit of a difficult area in terms of uh, explaining the differences in those assessments publicly. But um, I think one of the things to highlight is that the Russians didn't tell their divisions or uh, their lower echelon troops that they were going to war. And so what the Ukrainians were running into was 
uh, a huge amount of signals traffic and, and intercept reports and all of this stuff from the Russian units that were on their border, uh, in which there was absolutely no sign that these people thought that a war was coming or that that's what they were doing. Yeah. The Ukrainians were listening to this and, and you know, get, keeping a very close watch on the Russians at the tactical and operational level. And they came to two conclusions. The first thing is that the Russians didn't have the forces to do what the West was saying that the Russians were going to try. And it's worth noting that the Ukrainians were right in that assessment. Mm -hmm. um, and secondly, that the uh, Russians were clearly not going to invade because they, they didn't seem to have any clue that that was about to happen themselves. Um, you know, it's that question of who was more surprised, the Russians or the yeah. Ukrainians when the Russians yeah. came over the border. Thanks for listening. And remember, there's a second episode of this conversation with Jack Watling coming out in a few days. Sign up to Patreon to get it a day early and a range of other benefits. Search Patreon Doomsday Watch for more.